This is In the Arena. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. I'm also delighted to be sharing the podium with Dr. Pyle tonight. I really hope that our discussion this evening will be a practical benefit to you as you work through these very important issues on your own. Let's begin by defining our terms. By the Christian God, I mean the God who has revealed himself decisively in Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not going to be defending the view of every church council or biblical author. When I use the word God, it is God as revealed by Jesus that is to be understood. Now, in order to answer the question before us this evening, we've got to address two further questions. First, what good reasons are there to think that God exists? And second, what good reasons are there to think that God does not exist? Now, I'll leave it up to Dr. Pyle to present the arguments against God's existence and then respond to them in my next speech. For now, I want to sketch five arguments which provide good reason to think that God does exist. Number one, then, the origin of the universe implies the existence of a transcendent creator. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why anything at all exists? Typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. But that entails that the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't just go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, come into being at the Big Bang. As the physicist P.C.W. Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now, of course, alternative theories have been crafted over the years to try to avoid this absolute beginning. But none of these theories has commended itself to the scientific community as more plausible than the Big Bang Theory. In fact, in 2003, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin 
we're able to prove that any universe which is on average in a state of cosmic expansion cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. Vilenkin emphasizes, and I quote, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. That problem was nicely captured by Anthony Kenny of Oxford University. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this being must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, I think it must be personal as well. Why? Because this cause must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or else an intelligent mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that the cause of the universe is a transcendent personal mind. And thus, we're brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number two, the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life points to a designer of the cosmos. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that our universe is fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and complexity that literally defy human comprehension. For example, if the atomic weak force or the force of gravity were altered by as little as one part out of 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not have been life-permitting. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine-tuning, either physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity because the constants and quantities in question are independent of the laws of nature. In fact, string theory predicts that there are some 10 to the 500th power different universes compatible with nature's laws. So could the fine-tuning be due to chance? The problem with this alternative is that the probabilities that all the constants and quantities would fall by chance alone into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. The odds against the fine-tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. In order to rescue the alternative of chance, its proponents have been forced to adopt the hypothesis 
that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse of which our universe is but a part. Somewhere in this infinite world ensemble, finely tuned universes will appear by chance alone, and we happen to be one such world. There are, however, at least two major failings of the world ensemble hypothesis. First, there's no evidence that such a world ensemble exists. No one knows if there are other worlds. Moreover, recall that Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin proved that any universe in a state of continuous cosmic expansion cannot be infinite in the past. Their theorem applies to the multiverse too. Therefore, since the past is finite, only a finite number of other worlds can have been generated by now, so that there's no guarantee that a finely tuned world will have appeared in the ensemble. Second, if our universe is just a random member of an infinite world ensemble, then it is overwhelmingly more probable that we should be observing a much smaller universe than we in fact observe. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that it is inconceivably more probable that our solar system would suddenly form by a random collision of particles than that a finely tuned universe should exist. Penrose calls it utter chicken feed by comparison. So if our universe were just a random member of a world ensemble, it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing a universe no larger than our solar system. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the multiverse hypothesis. On atheism, at least, it is therefore highly probable that there is no world ensemble. Thus, the last ring of defense of the alternative to chance, of chance, rather, collapses. So, we may argue as follows. One, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, the fine-tuning is not due to either physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Thus, the fine-tuning of the universe implies the existence of a designer of the cosmos. Number three, objective moral values are plausibly grounded in God. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean values which are valid and binding whether anybody believes in them or not. Many theists and atheists agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in this way. Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, writes, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Like Professor Roos, 
I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. On the atheistic view, some action, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Roos himself admits the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Hence, we may argue as follows. One, if God does not exist, then objective values do not exist. Two, objective values do exist, from which it follows logically and inescapably. Three, therefore, God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus imply God's existence. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But his supreme confirmation of his radical claims was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in resurrection studies, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Gaut Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. 
and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent New Testament scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. Therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be, but that entails that God exists. Finally, number five, you can experience God personally. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hicks says, to them God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. If you're sincerely seeking God, then I believe that God will make his existence evident to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. So in conclusion, if Dr. Pyle wants us to believe otherwise, then he must first tear down all five of the reasons that I've presented and in their place establish a case of his own to prove that God does not exist. Unless and until he does that, then I think we should agree that theism is the more plausible worldview. was um, tremendous timekeeping there. Thank you very much. Um, uh, just, just in the uh, interest of absolute fairness, please now welcome Andrew Pyle. Okay, first of all, a word or two on my own position. I'm not going to be here to try to persuade you that God doesn't exist. I'm not going to provide any arguments at all for that thesis. I'm going to hear, I'm here to rebut Professor Craig's arguments that he's just provided. I think there are no good arguments to believe in the existence of God. Does that make me an atheist, an agnostic, a fideist? Well, I'm not a fideist. There are plenty of Christians who are, who believe that there is a God, but they believe that that is a matter of faith and not of reason. The fideists over the years have often welcomed attempts to rebut the arguments for the existence of God because they don't think their belief rests on arguments at all. Am I an atheist or an agnostic? Well, this is a very hard one, because, of course, it's going to turn on that wonderful old chestnut of when absence of evidence is evidence of absence. In the empirical domain, this is pretty clear. The absence of any evidence for elephants in my back garden is very strong evidence that there are no elephants in my back garden. Extremely strong. On the other hand, the absence of evidence of intelligent extraterrestrial life somewhere out there in the rest of the universe is very, very weak evidence that there's no intelligent extraterrestrial life. So when we're in the empirical domain, this is pretty clear-cut. We ask ourselves, how likely is it that we would have detected this evidence if it were there? The problem, of course, with the God debate is we don't know. 
whether God's there with the elephants, and we can infer from the fact that we don't have good evidence to the fact that he probably doesn't exist, or whether he's there with the intelligent extraterrestrials, in which case the fact that we don't have good evidence is no good evidence of absence. Precisely how you interpret the evidence is precisely the problem. So, when asked about this, I say I'm a sort of atheist-leaning agnostic. In different contexts, I would call myself an agnostic or an atheist, and I'm never quite sure how to spell it out. I don't think the arguments are good, but I don't have any very powerful reasons for thinking that there isn't a God. Looking at the arguments that Professor Craig has just presented us with, I think four of them are hopeless and one of them is interesting. Let's start with experience. The obvious worry about religious experience is just multiplicity. There's lots and lots and lots of it about. And of course, it's very, very, very culturally diverse. And people will tend to interpret their religious experience in terms of the faith they were brought up in. How could it be otherwise? And of course, there's lots of religious experience in faiths where whether there's a God or not is rather debatable. The Buddhists have lots of religious experience, but at least in their more austere forms, the Buddhists probably don't believe in a god at all. And what about the high priests of the Aztecs? Did they have religious experience of gods demanding human sacrifice? More blood on the altar, please? So there's a worry here. The religious experience is obviously real, but it's massively diverse, massively culturally variable, even idiosyncratically variable. Just think about the various religious experiences of people within the Christian tradition. Do they experience a loving and benign God? Do they experience a stern and wrathful God? How can they all be right? And do we have any criterion of correctness for religious experience? In his little book with Sinnott Armstrong, Professor Craig draws an analogy with colorblindness and says we don't have a criterion, but nevertheless some people have been getting it right. But of course, the analogy he draws there is a complete failure. In the case of colorblindness, we do have a criterion. My father's red-green colorblind. He didn't know about it until he was 16 and joined the Merchant Navy. He was subjected to some tests, and they showed him he was red-green colorblind. And importantly, they showed him that he was red-green colorblind using the sensory information available to him. He knew, using his own senses, that he failed various tests. He'd be lousy at picking the right fruit out of a box of fruit. So in that case, we have a criterion of correctness. In the case of religious experience, it looks as if we don't. We just have enormous diversity. Okay, second, morality. First step towards clarity here, get rid of the terms subjective and objective. Excise them from your vocabulary when you're doing serious philosophy. This is the first thing I tell my students when they come to do ethics. The terms objective and subjective are just sources of endless confusion, endless muddle. When they object and they say, I sure, I'm sure I know what I mean when I say something's objective and something's subjective, I then ask them, well, what about colours? Are colours subjective or objective? As soon as you ask that question, you see that Actually, it has two different facets or aspects. When we experience colours, is there some aspect of the world that we're responding to? 
is there something out there in the world that makes something red or blue or green? Answer, yes. So you might say, well, colours are objective, aren't they? On the other hand, you could say, could we explain colour experience and the distinctions we draw between colours without saying quite a lot of rather subtle things about human sense organs, human receptivity to colours, the fact that we divide up the colour space in one way rather than another? No, we couldn't. We know that other organisms have very different sense organs, respond to different bits of the spectrum, parcel up the spectrum in different ways. So it looks as if colours are subjective, doesn't it? You have to get rid of the terms subjective and objective and pose the questions right. Let's do a tiny bit of modern meta-ethics. Modern meta-ethicists usually ask the following questions. First question, are moral judgments truth apt? That is, are they making propositional claims capable of being true or false in the first place? Many say yes, some say no. What else might be going on if they're not truth apt, if they're not propositional? Well, they could be expressions of emotion. Many theorists have thought that. Or they could be commands. Richard Hare at Oxford developed in the 1960s a theory of moral judgments as implicit commands. Commands aren't true or false, but commands are important in our lives. Let's suppose that we think that moral judgments are truth apt, propositional. Do they occasionally state truths? If we believe that some moral judgments state truths, then we owe, a, owe our readers, our listeners, an account of truth makers. We want to know what makes them true. In modern normative ethics, we've got three great theories. We've got the Aristotelian theory, that moral truths are made true by facts about what constitutes human flourishing. We've got the utilitarian theory, which says moral truths are true by virtue of corresponding to facts about human welfare, or more broadly, the welfare of sentient beings. And we've got the Kantian theory, which says moral truths are truths of practical reason and you test them by the famous universalizability test. None of these theories requires God. Normative ethics, I proclaim, gets on very well without God. How might ethics depend on religion? Well, only as far as I can see if the divine command theory were true. But I think the divine command theory is hopeless. Many, many, many years ago, Plato famously asked, is something good because the gods command it, or do they command it because it's good? I think sanity requires us to say the gods command it because it's good. And that means we need an independent standard of what is good and what is bad. On the divine command theory, it looks as if if God were to command rape or murder or genocide, that would make it right. I hope none of you think that. I hope if somebody commanded you to commit rape or genocide or murder, you would say, no, I must not do it, and not ask where the command was coming from. Kant famously called that the autonomy of ethics. We use our own independent moral standard to judge any orders that we get from any source whatsoever. That's what it is for morality to be autonomous. Now, I thought in my innocence that the divine, divine command theory was a dead letter. But I've since learned that it's not. 
and that there are rather eminent philosophers in the United States who are trying to breathe life back into what I always thought was a corpse. I shall let Professor Craig explain that in his next answer. I still think it's a dead letter, but uh, we must move on. Ten minutes. The Big Bang. Well, I just want to dismiss the old a priori arguments. Professor Craig has given us the argument that Kant gives us in the first antinomy of the critique of pure reason for the finite past of the universe. He doesn't give us Kant's argument for the antithesis, for the universe having an infinite past, and he doesn't give us Kant's own solution, which is transcendental idealism. I think that the serious argument for a finite age of universe is the Big Bang. Does the Big Bang need God? Quentin Smith argues no. In his paper in the Cambridge Companion to Atheism, he offers an atheistic Big Bang cosmology that, he thinks, answers all the questions, all the questions, he says, that can properly be asked. To my eyes, his account appeared self-consistent and consistent with observation. I felt, I confess, a vague disquiet that something somewhere had been left unanswered, but I couldn't articulate this into a good argument against Smith, and I couldn't be sure that I could trust my intuitive sense of unease. Would God be a good explanation of the Big Bang? I think not. Why not? Not because we can't give a cause for the cause. That's sometimes raised as an objection to positing God as the cause of the Big Bang. But I don't think that's the real objection. And it's one that Professor Craig has easily rebutted elsewhere. He says, you could explain an unknown disease in terms of a new virus, and it looks as if, even if you don't know where the virus has come from, you might still have an interesting causal hypothesis. I think that's fine. Similarly, Newton, when he postulates his theory of universal gravity, he famously refuses to speculate about the cause of gravity. Is he, does he still have an interesting causal hypothesis? Yes. Why? Well, because you can get lots of new and testable predictions out of it. Newton says, if universal gravitation is true, the planets will swerve off their nice Keplerian orbits at conjunction. And he writes to his friend, the astronomer royal, saying, go and point your telescope and you'll see it. You get propositions about the shape of the Earth, you get Halley's Comet, you get lots and lots of new empirical content from this theory. Likewise with Craig's own example of the virus. If it's a virus, that's going to tell us something interesting about the method of transmission and about the ineffectiveness of antibiotics, which work against bacteria. The key objection to positing God as the cause of the Big Bang is that the causal hypothesis is entirely ad hoc. This is argued by Adolf Grunbaum, Mr. Space and Time, or should I say Professor Space and Time, in a paper in the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science in 2004, a paper entitled The Poverty of Theistic Cosmology. He says, if your original hypothesis is just God exists, that explains nothing. If your original hypothesis is God exists and causes the physical universe to have certain features, this explains those features, but only trivially. <laughs> so the obvious challenge here is, say something interesting about this causal hypothesis to convince us that this causal hypothesis is not entirely ad hoc. Fine-tuning. The latest and most sophisticated version of the design argument. First question, is there a problem here at all? There are plenty of people who call themselves anthropic skeptics, 
who say there's no problem here. The improbabilities are undefined, the numbers are bogus. This, if true, would undercut both design and infinite universe explanations because they'd both be solutions to a non-problem. In the BJPS for June 2005, there's an article by Jeffrey Kopersky, Should We Care About Fine-Tuning? He discusses the views of the anthropic skeptics, masses of technical mathematics here, and eventually concludes that it's natural to assume indifference, that is, equal probability of a given value falling within any given range of interval, unless we know otherwise. So we come across a dice with six faces and we say, unless we know something to the contrary, we'll assume that the probability of falling on any face is one-sixth. Actually, the one thing we do know about dice is that that's false. For any given dice, the probability is certainly not one-sixth. No dice was ever a perfect cube with the mass perfectly distributed across it. So any given empirical dice is always going to have some slight bias somewhere or other. Kapersky says that this assumption of indifference is the natural assumption. It captures the intuition that nature has no preference for certain parameter values. Science might one day show that nature does. Only then will the question of the true distribution have to be addressed. So he says, well, let's assume indifference. That generates the vast numbers, and they're staggering numbers, that Professor Craig has alluded to. But there's a serious doubt about whether the problem has even been well posed. Does the argument that Professor Craig has given for fine-tuning actually entail that life or mind is staggeringly improbable? No, it doesn't. The fine-tuning argument entails that around here, there are lots and lots of life-prohibiting universes. Take the values of the 20 physical constants, tweak one of them a little bit, and you get a life-prohibiting universe, we wouldn't be around. But what we've got here is a 20-dimensional hyperspace. Very hard to imagine, but the mathematics is fairly straightforward. Just imagine 20 independent variables. Do we know anything about very, very distant worlds in this hyperspace? Nothing at all. So out there, somewhere else in this hyperspace, there might be lots and lots and lots of universes that permit, as they say in Star Trek, life but not as we know it. Now, I'm going to have to speed up, otherwise I'm going to have to say nothing about the resurrection. That's a shame. Let's return to Craig's argument. I had a little tutorial before coming to this debate from Stuart Prenell, who is uh, assistant editor of the BJPS, and he took me through the wonders of string theory and, rather more interesting, loop quantum gravity, and both of these various branches of modern physics generate infinite ensembles of universes. The loop quantum gravity is fun. This is a wonderful cosmogony with universes emerging out of black holes. Each universe has values for the fundamental physical constants that are variations on those of its parent universe, and you get a sort of quasi-Darwinian story of the evolution of universes. This is a wonderful, fun story. Is it true? I haven't the foggiest notion. Is it all metaphysical? Well, not necessarily. Not if our theory tells us things that we can predict things that we can observe in our physical universe. 
Is it merely ad hoc? Are we just multiplying probabilistic resources merely to solve the fine-tuning problem? Well, it might not be. I read a nice little web article by Lee Smolin, pioneer of loop quantum gravity, before coming to this debate, and he stresses again and again and again the possibility of performing experiments. This is the test for ad hocness. Can we go away and perform some experiments? Can we test this hypothesis? And he says, for about 30 years in fundamental physics, we were generating hypotheses, but we were completely unable to test them. And he says, now we're beginning to be able to form tests. So he says, the rival infinite universe versions of string theory have met some setbacks. They've come across some facts that are inconsistent with their theory. Is this a death knell for the theory? Well, not necessarily. But my theory, he says, loop quantum gravity passes the tests. Now, at this point, it looks as if we can turn round to the natural theologian, the partisan of design, and say, are you going to develop your design hypothesis into something testable? Are you going to tell us, on the basis of your hypothesis of design, that the universe will be observed to have properties F and G and H where these are independently testable. That's the test here. I think the positing of a god to explain the Big Bang is utterly ad hoc. But the positing of a god who's a designer might not be. After all, previous partisans of the design hypothesis actually came up with some claims about the empirical world on the basis of it. Many of them turn out to be false, but that's not the end of the world. I'd better stop. The challenge to, to Craig is to come up with any empirical content to the designer hypothesis. If time permits, I'll come back to the resurrection later. Thank you. That concludes, the first, uh, that concludes the first round, the first bout. Deep breaths, because um, I think we're just going to go straight into the response to the response. You'll remember in my first speech, I said that in order to decide whether or not the Christian God exists, we need to answer two questions. First, are there any good reasons to think that God does not exist? Now, Dr. Pyle, by his own admission, is unable to offer us any reasons to think that God does not exist. This leaves us, then, at best, with a sort of agnosticism. God may or may not exist. And as he himself recognizes, this is compatible with Christianity. Uh, I may believe that God exists simply on the basis of my religious experience in God or uh, on the basis of uh, faith. And therefore, the failure of any arguments for God's existence does nothing at all to disprove that he uh, exists. Dr. Pyle also admits he doesn't know if the absence of evidence would prove that there is no God. And I would suggest that in this case, the absence of evidence for God, even if it were uh, true, uh, does nothing to disprove God's existence because uh, the absence of evidence is evidence of absence only in the case where if the entity did exist, you should expect to see more evidence of its existence than what we do in fact see. And what that would mean is that if God exists, should we expect to see more evidence of his existence 
than the beginning of the universe out of nothing, the extraordinary fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, the existence of a realm of objectively existing moral values, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and religious experience of knowing God personally. I don't think there's any probability that we ought to have greater evidence than that if God did exist. So basically, at worst, we're left tonight with agnosticism, which is completely compatible with Christianity. But I have offered five reasons to think that God does exist, and Andrew has offered some uh, very technical responses to some of them. First, the origin of the universe points to a creator. Notice that Andrew does not deny my first premise that whatever begins to exist has a cause. I then offered two arguments as to why the universe began to exist. The first was a philosophical argument against the possibility of an actually infinite past. And he, by his own admission, he says, I will simply dismiss this argument. Well, dismissing it is not the same as refuting it. He says, Kant offers an antinomy to this, but does Dr. Pyle seriously mean to endorse the antithesis of Kant's first antinomy? I think not. That is easily solved by simply saying that time begins at the moment of creation and that God beyond the Big Bang exists timelessly. So unless he thinks, and I'm sure he does not, that Kant's argument in the antithesis is sound, we're left with a perfectly good argument against the, the infinitude of the past. I'm going to stake my claim on that philosophical argument. What about the scientific evidence? Well, here he simply alluded vaguely to Quentin Smith's arguments, but didn't tell us what those arguments were. In fact, Quentin Smith believes in the beginning of the universe. He agrees with the second premise that the universe began to exist. So I think we've got good scientific and philosophical reasons for believing the universe began to exist. And from that, it follows with logical necessity that therefore the universe has a cause. Now, Dr. Pyle indicts this conclusion by saying God is not a good answer to this because you can't make any new predictions on the basis of the God hypothesis. It's ad hoc. Well, the problem with this response is that I'm not offering a kind of creation science here. I'm not offering this as a sort of scientific hypothesis. This is a deductive philosophical argument. And given the two premises, the conclusion follows with logical necessity. Whether you think it's explanatory, whether you like it or not, is irrelevant. It follows logically from the two premises, and he's done nothing to refute either of those two premises. On the contrary, I think that both of them have, in effect, been granted. So we have good reason to believe that there's a personal, transcendent, uncaused, beginningless, timeless, spaceless creator of the universe. Now, what about the second argument from fine-tuning? Here he said the fine-tuning may not be a problem, and I'm sure you didn't understand what he was talking about here. He, he admitted, however, that it is natural to assume a principle of indifference. If you've got 10 to the 500th power, different possible universes permitted by string theory, there's a principle of indifference that says none of those is preferred, and his, he, he admitted that that's right, so this would be a good question. Why does a life-permitting universe exist given its enormous improbability? He said, but do we really know anything about very, very distant universes? You don't need to consider those for this argument to be sound. All you need to do is consider this local group of universes that are governed by our same laws, and then you slightly alter the constants and quantities. And as you do so, you find that it's inconceivably improbable that there are life-permitting universes within that dimension. It's like having a fly on the wall and a single shot is fired, 
and the bullet pierces the fly. Even if outside the large blank area around the fly, the, the wall was covered with flies so that a bullet would likely hit one fired at random, nevertheless, within the blank area, it is much more probable that the bullet would miss the fly than hit it. And the fact that the universe is fine-tuned for our existence, I think, cannot be plausibly explained by the result of chance. And in fact, the appeal to many universes in loop quantum gravity it admits this. It is to say, yes, we can't explain this by chance alone without the metaphysical hypothesis of enormous uh, proportions of this infinite world ensemble. But my two objections remain. First, there is no evidence that loop quantum gravity is correct. This is a highly embryonic uh, field of uh, exploration, uh, and certainly no evidence that there are these other worlds. Uh, secondly, the Penrose problem remains, that if, the, if we are just one member of a random assortment of worlds, then it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing a much smaller universe, because there are many more of those types of universes in the ensemble than finely tuned universes. Again, he asks, what predictions can you make? I'm not offering this as creation science. This is a deductive argument. And it follows that uh, if these three alternatives are the only alternatives for explaining fine-tuning, and if two of them don't work, then it follows that the third one has to be the best explanation. So I think it's that the best explanation for the appearance of design in the universe is that it is designed. Now, what about the moral argument for God's existence? I do not think or agree that the terms objective and subjective are muddled terms. Objective means mind independent. The problem with this example of the colors is that it wasn't objectivity or subjectivity that was muddled, it was colors that are muddled because colors are secondary qualities that seem to exist in the world and in the mind. It was the colors that were the source of the ambiguity, not the objectivity. Think about elephants. Do elephants objectively exist? Yes, they do. If there were no human beings to think about them, there would still be elephants. They have objective, mind-independent existence. It's the color example that he used that uh, misleads you to thinking that there's some muddle here. But cast the argument in terms of moral judgments. My argument is that apart from God, there's no reason to think that any of these moral judgments are true. Um, Richard Dawkins, for example, uh, in uh, his recent book, uh, takes the view that there is no good, nor e no evil. There is simply DNA replicating itself. There is no meaning beyond that. That's the position of the secular evolutionary atheist. And what I'd like to know from Dr. Pyle is why is Dawkins wrong? Paul Kurtz, the humanist philosopher, has said that the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation if they are neither derived from God nor anchored in a transcendent ground, which he hasn't offered, are they purely ephemeral? That's the challenge for the atheist. So cast the argument in terms of moral uh, realism and truth, and uh, I don't see any reason to think there are any moral truths of the sort that he seems to agree that there are. Um, do objective moral values exist? He seems to think that they do because he says we can get on without God. So he grants the second premise, but I for the life of me, don't understand why on atheism human beings are morally valuable. They're just primates, relatively evolved animals, and animals are not moral agents. He says divine command morality faces the arbitrariness objection of the euthyphro dilemma. Not at all. I'm not a voluntarist. I don't think that God just makes up moral values. 
Rather, God's commandments flow necessarily from his own holy and perfectly loving nature, so that God's own nature is the paradigm of moral goodness, which serves as the necessary expression of his moral commands to us. So I think divine command morality is a quite viable alternative to atheism, which I think cannot provide any ontological foundation for moral values. Uh, he did not respond to the arguments for the resurrection of Jesus, for which I think we have good personal grounds, so let me go to the, my fifth point about personal experience. The problem here, he says, is that there's a multiplicity of religious experience uh, and there's great diversity and no criteria to judge among them. Well, what I would say is simply this. A person is rational to believe in the object of his religious experience in the absence of some defeater of that experience. If there is no reason to think that experience is delusory, then he's perfectly within his rights in thinking that it is veridical. And of course, he hasn't offered any defeaters because he says he doesn't have any arguments for atheism. So in the absence of any arguments against the existence of God, I'm perfectly rational to believe in the object of my religious experience. Second, as for diversity, notice that false claims to something do nothing to undermine the truth of a veridical claim. If you do have a genuine experience of God, someone else making a counterfeit claim does absolutely nothing logically to undermine the veridicality of your experience. So I don't think that the problem of multiplicity is uh, so serious a question or problem as he would have us believe. So I think in the end we have five arguments which remain intact for the existence of the God revealed by Jesus and admittedly no arguments against it. So at worst we're left with agnosticism, at best I think we're left with good reasons for Christian theism. just correct a couple of misunderstandings and then I'll go on to say something about the fifth argument, the argument about the resurrection. Professor Craig thinks that I'm endorsing the antithesis of the, in this second antinomy. No, I was making a rather different point. I was suggesting that the time is long gone when we settled great debates about whether the universe is infinite or finite in space or in time by a priori argument. I have a very good colleague and a good friend called James Ladyman who writes lengthy and very vitriolic polemics against people who think that we should do this stuff by a priori argument. As a historian of philosophy, I have to look at the a priori arguments because that's where this stuff is coming from. So when I was talking about Kant, I was simply saying Kant presents an argument for the, for the thesis for a finitely old universe. He presents an argument for the antithesis, for an infinitely old universe, and then he presents his own solution to the problem, which is transcendental idealism. The physical universe doesn't exist in its own right anyway. Now, I don't think this is the right way to tackle these problems. That's why I wanted to dismiss that line of argument from Professor Craig. I wanted to say the right way to do this stuff is to look at the physics, and Professor Craig, of course, does that. He looks at the Big Bang. With regard to the Big Bang, he says, I'm not presenting an empirical hypothesis here. I'm presenting a metaphysical argument. But of course, he's presenting a causal claim. And when somebody comes up with a causal claim, you can ask, what reason do I have to believe in this posited cause? When Professor Craig says, it's a virus that's producing this disease, 
not something else, not a bacterium, not any sort of other sort of microorganism. It's a virus that's causing this disease. And then I say, well, what reason do I have to think that it's a virus that's causing this disease? And the answer, of course, is, well, it will pass some tests. If this disease is caused by a virus, antibiotics will be ineffective. It will pass through filters of a certain kind, and so on and so forth. So when somebody advances a causal claim, a causal hypothesis, you have to ask what evidence is being presented. And then the question is whether that causal hypothesis is ad hoc, whether it has been merely contrived to explain the available evidence. And the test for ad hocness is independent, testable content. The natural theologians of the past were not shy of adopting this challenge. Professor Craig seems to be. Now, let's say a little bit about the resurrection. There's lots more I could say about what Professor Craig has just told us, but Professor Craig said quite correctly that I'd said nothing about the resurrection. Well, it won't do for Professor Craig just to say, these are facts that need to be explained. Remember the nature of our sources. These are documents selected, how, on what basis, by what criteria, from a mass of documents written in Greek by a group of people living at least 30 years, probably more, later than the original Aramaic-speaking disciples of Christ. Just remember those historical facts and you get the endless possibilities of misremembering, misreporting, mistranslating, spin-doctoring. Endless possibilities for a misrepresentation of the original fact from any number of sources of human error. You might ask, do I believe in the historical Jesus at all? Well, I think the answer is yes. I think that myths and legends tend to accumulate around some kernel of historical fact. Do I believe in the crucifixion? Well, almost certainly, it seems the most extraordinary thing for anyone to make up. Remember that the disciples and the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would lead them to glory. So it seems a bizarre assumption that anyone would make up the tale of the Messiah being put to death like a common criminal. So I have a very high subjective probability that something like the crucifixion probably happened. Do I believe in the empty tomb? Well, I neither strongly believe nor strongly disbelieve it. Empty tombs happen. Nothing miraculous about an empty tomb. Bodies go missing for all manner of reasons. Might have happened, might not have happened. But to get from the empty tomb to the miracle of the, the resurrection, Professor Craig needs to take on the most astonishing fourfold task. Let me explain what this fourfold task consists of. He's going to have to list the naturalistic hypotheses. There are, what, eight or nine hundred people here in this room? Well, I suggest that you all go away and write a little naturalistic story about how a body can go missing from a tomb in a couple of days. If my playwright friend Anthony Smith is here, he can write two, since he's good at writing stories. Then you've got to eliminate the naturalistic hypotheses, and when Professor Craig does this in more detail elsewhere, his arguments amount to little more than special pleading. They amount to little more than the claim that if the body had gone missing because somebody had pinched it, somebody had run off with it, then some person or persons would have done something for which we don't have a proper explanation in terms of motives. 
Some person or persons unknown have done something for which we don't understand the motives. And of course, people never do anything for motives we don't clearly understand. And of course, if we're, on, we're admitting supernatural causes, you can admit any other supernatural causes ad hoc. Maybe the devil did it all. And then you've got to eliminate those. So you've got to list naturalistic hypotheses, eliminate naturalistic hypotheses, list rival supernaturalistic hypotheses, eliminate rival supernaturalistic hypotheses. All I can say is good luck. I wanted to leave a little bit of time for an excursus into comparative religion. When I read the works of Professor Craig, I come to the conclusion that comparative religion is a rather discernible weakness in his philosophy of religion. He argues for the historical truth of the Christian miracle of the resurrection. And I want to ask him what he thinks of the Ganesh milk miracles of 1995. I looked these up on the, on the web the other day, and I came across 97,400 entries under Ganesh plus miracle. I confess I only looked at the first 40. What was the occurrence? Well, statues of the elephant god Ganesh in Hindu temples all over the world started to accept milk offerings for a day and then stopped. That's what we're told. This happened on September the 21st, 1995. As a neutral observer with no allegiance to either religion, Hinduism or Christianity, I found myself in the position of being the sort of neutral judge and scoring the debate. Which of these two miracles has better evidential credentials? Well, what sort of tests might we employ? Quantity of witnesses. This is no contest. Ganesh wins hands down. These reports came from many, many, many hundreds of Hindu temples right across the Hindu world, each of them witnessed by hundreds, possibly more, witnesses. So if we're counting quantity of heads, that's Ganesh 1, Christ nil. Quanti quality of witnesses. Well, the scriptures tell us that the disciples were uneducated, illiterate, superstitious folk. Many of these late 20th century Hindus are highly educated much more important than level of education, level of critical awareness. If you read the reports on these websites, you'll find that the believers in this Ganesh miracle are being forced very, very early on to confront skeptical naturalistic counter-hypotheses. Maybe it's just capillary action. And they're being forced to try to rebut skeptical naturalistic counter-hypotheses. So in terms of quality of the witnesses, again, Ganesh wins hands down. That's 2-0 to Ganesh. Time lag. Well, there's two time lags here, of course. Time lag between the events and the reports. Time lag between the reports and us. And again, of course, on both counts, it's perfectly clear that Ganesh wins hands down. These reports are occurring in the media almost immediately after the events that they supposedly record. And, of course, these events were only 12 years ago, so we can go and visit these Hindus in their temples and talk to them. So, by the time lag criterion, again, Ganesh wins hands down. That's 3-0 to Ganesh. Fourth criterion, prejudice or bias. Well, this one's a straight draw. The Christian miracles are reported by Christians. The most favorable reports of the, the Ganesh milk miracles are in Hinduism today. Well, there's a surprise for you. 
So we have Christian miracles reported by Christians, we have Hindu miracles reported by Hindus. That one's a straight draw. What should we conclude from this? The evidential case for the Ganesh miracles is vastly superior to that for the Christian resurrection. This needn't worry me. I can be skeptical about both, but rather more skeptical about the resurrection. But I think it should worry Professor Craig. After all, he's come here today to argue for the Christian God, not just any old God. And I think if he really takes the argument for the resurrection seriously, he should take this argument for the milk miracles and for the elephant god Ganesh seriously. I look forward to his appearance on the next of these debates in the guise of the Hindu holy man, proclaiming his allegiance to the great god Ganesh. Well, so engrossing is this exchange that I, it, how many is that? Two goes each, is it? Okay, well, we've still got time to, for more to come. Right, now, number three, round right, three. Here we go. Seven minutes each. We've still not heard any good reasons to think that God does not exist in tonight's debate. So at worst, we're left with a level playing field with agnosticism that's not incompatible with Christianity. But are there any good reasons to think that God does exist? Consider my argument based on the origin of the universe. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Dr. Pyle tacitly agrees. Number two, the universe began to exist. Dr. Pyle tacitly agrees. He dismisses the philosophical argument, but without refutation. He says the time is long gone by which we settle questions by means of such a priori arguments. This is not an a priori argument in the first place, it's, but it is a philosophical or metaphysical argument. And as for it being, being long gone, well, I think that's just a manifestation of modern arrogance to, to dismiss arguments in this way. I think the argument is sound. And there are plenty of other contemporary philosophers, such as David Oderberg at the University of Leeds, or G.J. Whitrow, uh, at, uh, who was at Imperial College of Science and Technology, who agree with me. So you've got to do more to refute a philosophical argument than just treat it dismissively. And as for the scientific evidence, I've already indicated that among contemporary scientists, the Big Bang, uh, or the prediction of the Big Bang theory that the universe began to exist is widely accepted. That leads then deductively to the conclusion that the universe has a cause. Now, again, he simply says, but what reason is there to believe in this cause? What predictions do you make? It's a deductive argument. The, if you grant the two premises, then there must be such a cause, and then I gave arguments as to why we ought to think this cause is timeless, changeless, personal, and so forth. But let me also add, it is confirmed by the other arguments for the existence of God, the arguments from fine-tuning, from moral values, from the resurrection of Jesus. All of these create a cumulative case which I think make the God or creator hypothesis quite plausible. He hasn't yet responded to my refutation of his objections to the fine-tuning argument or the moral argument, so let's turn to the argument concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And here I was slightly amused to find that it was Dr. Pyle who was using a priori methods to deal with a historical question. He says, look at the nature of the sources, there's ways of misrepresenting, ways of misremembering, 
All of these things are possible. Sure, and biblical historians are aware of those, and that's why they have criteria of authenticity to determine what does and does not belong to the historical core of these narratives. These uh, historians are not naive. Criteria such as multiple attestation and independent sources, embarrassment, the very criterion that he implicitly used in accepting the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, coherence with uh, readily established facts, uh, Semitic uh, language and uh, traces of milieu, and so on and so forth. And when they do this, they find that in fact these narratives are very credible with regard to these three facts. In the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, in a review by Mark Allen Powell in the year 2000, he points out that the dominant, and in my mind, likely view, is that the passion narratives are early and based on eyewitness testimony. At the conclusion of his epical study of the empty tomb and appearances, N.T. Wright says that the empty tomb and appearances have a historical probability so high as to be virtually certain like the death of Augustus in A.D. 14 or the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So given the tools of historical research, you arrive at these three facts and they can't be dismissed a priori by appealing to general possibilities. So the real question then is, what is the best explanation of these facts? Now notice that Dr. Pyle didn't defend any naturalistic explanation. He just says there's any number you can think of. Fine, uh, suggest them. The fact is that those that have been suggested by serious historians have been all dismissed by researchers on this topic. Conspiracy and theft by the disciples, apparent death of, of Jesus on, on the cross, hallucinations, visit to the wrong tomb, twin theories. Um, what naturalistic theory is he going to defend? I'd like to hear it and then, then we can deal with it. So I don't think my arguments are a matter of, of special pleading. In fact, it is true. I mean, it's just a fact if you know the, the literature that there is no naturalistic hypothesis for the explanation of these three facts which has garnered a large number of contemporary adherents. What about other supernatural hypotheses? I would suggest that here it's the religio-historical context in which the event occurs that gives us the clue to the correct interpretation of the miracle. Namely, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified for his personal blasphemous claims about himself to be the revelation of the God of Israel. If indeed he has been supernaturally raised from the dead, the God of Israel has vindicated those allegedly blasphemous claims for which he was executed. So in this religio-historical context, I think this gives us good grounds to think that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I must confess I am not familiar with the Gamish miracles that he talks about, um, but what I would say in, about this is that you can't dismiss these sort of things a priori. By pointing to other miracles, you cannot disqualify the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That's just bad historical method. You've got to look at both of them with serious historical scrutiny and then compare them and I, I've never looked at these Gamish miracles. But one thing I would say is that they are suspiciously like the sort of things that adherence to a particular religion would believe in. Uh, just like crying statues of Mary or, or visions of Mary. It's the sort of thing that proponents of that particular religion would naturally believe in. And in that respect you see it is totally unlike the belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Jews had no idea of a crucified Messiah. Messiah was supposed to 
crush Israel's enemies. And that meant, in that context, throwing off the yoke of Rome. Much less did they have any idea of a Messiah that would rise from the dead. In fact, as I say, Judaism prohibited any notion of resurrection from the dead until the end of the world. So this is the last sort of miracle that these disciples would invent or come to believe in, given their Jewish frame of mind and, and thought form. So I think that it stands qualitatively apart from the kinds of miracles that Dr. Pyle is talking about. But in any case, we would need to do a historical examination of both uh, cases and see where the, the evidence lies. And I think that in the case of the resurrection of Jesus, the three facts are fairly firmly established and the religio-historical context gives us good ground to believe plausibly that the God of Israel has raised Jesus, his son, from the dead in vindication of those claims. Professor Craig says, I've not provided reasons against God's existence. Quite true, I haven't tried to. He goes back to the Big Bang and says, I've got a deductive argument for a cause. Well, that's just a deductive argument for a cause labeled a cause. Deductive argument saying, here's something that comes into existence, therefore it has a cause. But he wants to say a great deal more about the nature of that cause. He wants to say a whole lot of stuff about what that cause is. He's advancing a causal explanation. Now, I think when somebody advances a causal explanation, it's legitimate for somebody else to come back and say, why should I believe that that is the cause rather than anything else? Now we've got the Quentin Smith account, which makes the physical universe effectively self-sustaining. He says, the whole thing works fine without a god. Does he believe that it has a cause? Well, he believes that every causal question you can ask about the physical universe can be answered by reference to the physical universe. So he flatly denies that the physical universe needs a transcendent cause. If you buy into the Lee Smolin scenario of the wonderful reproducing universes, then again you're going to get a cause for this physical universe, for the Big Bang that led to the creation of this physical universe, but it's going to come out of a previous physical universe, which was in the ancestor relation to this physical universe. Now, we're not going to be positioned to reconstruct that causal story, of course, because no information gets across the Big Bang. But there's another naturalistic account of how our universe come, came to be through a Big Bang that doesn't require any sort of transcendent God. Now we go on to naturalistic versus supernaturalistic explanations. I don't think I have to defend any particular naturalistic explanation. I don't believe in ghosts. Somebody comes along and asks me why I don't believe in ghosts and cites, let's say, some very, very famous ghost stories. I run through the ghost stories and I discover, let's say, that of the 100 best-known ghost stories, 60 can be explained in terms of known natural causes, 35 can be explained in terms of human fraud, basically, made up, and five are left unexplained. A reasonable percentage. I think I then have grounds to think that probably the others can be explained in terms of either more naturalistic causes or human fraud. Of course, I'm not going to be able to run through all the cases, and I'm not always going to be able to list naturalistic hypotheses. 
I just think we have very, very strong grounds from a sort of track record arguments for inductive arguments from the workings of nature for a sort of broad-based naturalism. I can't prove that to you. I can't show that supernaturalistic explanations are bad explanations. But I think naturalism has a great deal going for it. And I think that we can explain miracle reports very often in purely naturalistic terms. I think if you're a naturalist, you're going to expect there to be lots of miracle reports, and there are going to be lots of miracle reports whether there are miracles or not. Let's say a little bit about the Ganesh miracles. I'm astonished, frankly, that a professor of the philosophy of religion knows nothing about the most publicized, the most widely known miracle debate of modern times. If I were a professor of the philosophy of religion, I would have gone into the discussion in some detail. I would have spent some time looking at these reports and seeing whether, as I've claimed, they are much better evidenced than the resurrection case. Professor Craig has at least the beginnings of a reply. He says, well, these are the sorts of things that the people in a particular religion would believe in. And he says, this is completely different from the resurrection. Well, I want to remind him of a debate he conducted with Bart Ehrman not so many years ago, which is available online. And Ehrman says that the famous passage about the disciples meeting the mysterious stranger on the road to Emmaus towards the end of the Gospel of Luke can be explained in the following way. The disciples met the mysterious stranger and the mysterious stranger opens the scriptures for them. And I presume this is both literal and metaphorical explains the meaning of some very well-known passages of Scripture, passages, I think, and I'm quoting from Ehrman here, but I think he's probably right about this, from Isaiah and the Psalms, pointing to how the chosen one of God will be treated, in this case, mistreated, and thus explaining within Jewish belief system what they've just observed. So I don't think this is quite as alien a thought to the Jews as Professor Craig is suggesting. The Professor Ehrman, with whom Professor Craig had this debate, is, I understand, a very eminent scholar in these matters, very well learned in Jewish law in the Old Testament. He says, these are very, very familiar passages from Isaiah. And I think what we have here is the beginnings of a naturalistic account of the origins of a myth. Just put yourself in the position of the early disciples. Their beloved leader has just been killed. They haven't the foggiest notion what to do next. Shall we all pack up and go home? What are we for? What do we do? What's the point? They meet the mysterious stranger, and the mysterious stranger explains to them, explains the significance of what they've just observed, and that gives them a way of going on, a raison d'etre, a reason for carrying on the faith. I actually think this is a much more human story, a story with much more human appeal than the traditional story of the resurrection as a miracle. I think what we have here is one of the great myths of origins, and in the course of time between the death of Christ 
and the writings of the Gospels, a period of about 30 years, which involves translation out of Aramaic back into Greek. This myth becomes established as the great Christian story, which has come down to you all. In my closing statement, I'd like to draw together some of the threads of this debate and see if we can come to some conclusions. In the first place, we've not seen any good arguments to think that God does not exist tonight. And therefore, at worst, we're left with agnosticism, which is perfectly compatible with Christianity. But secondly, I think we do have the balance of probability on the side of Christian theism tonight. First, the origin of the universe. It's never been disputed that what begins to exist has a cause, nor has the argument for the beginning of the universe been disputed tonight. It simply be dismissed as uh, not modish any longer. He did in his last speech say, well, loop quantum gravity uh, might be able to provide an alternative, but it's dubious that loop quantum gravity or Smolin's model can be extended backward to infinity. This has never been successfully done. So on balance, there is no doubt that the balance of the scientific evidence as well as the philosophical evidence is that the universe had an absolute beginning at some point in the past, and therefore it must have a cause. Now he says, but what is the nature of that cause? Well, I answered that in my first speech. I gave several arguments as, the, uh, as to the nature of this cause. Timeless, spaceless, immaterial, beginningless, uncaused, personal, and enormously powerful. And all of those follow from a conceptual analysis of what it means to be a cause of time and space. But this is not offered as a scientific explanation. This is a personal explanation. If I go in and find my wife in the kitchen and there's a cup of uh, kettle boiling, I say, why is the kettle boiling? She might give me a scientific explanation in terms of the heat of the flame passing kinetic energy to the molecules of the water causing them to fly off in the form of steam. Or she might say, I put it on to make a cup of tea. The one is just as valid an explanation as the other. And I'm offering an explanation in terms of an agent and his volitions. A scientific explanation of the first state of the universe cannot be given because it is an absolutely first state. He says, but Smith thinks that the singularity could be the cause of the universe. The problem is that the singularity itself came into being at some point in the past and needs an explanation. The fine-tuning argument has been dropped in the debate, as has the moral argument. What about the resurrection of Jesus? He says, well, naturalism has a great deal going for it, but he never told us what it is. In fact, naturalism is plausibly the same as atheism, and he's not offered any arguments for atheism tonight. So you can't disqualify the evidence for the resurrection by presupposing naturalism. That would be question-begging. He says, well, um, there are other ghost stories that one might explain, and therefore you don't need to explain every ghost story of that sort. Granted, but that's why the uniqueness of the resurrection is so important. If you could show that the resurrection is exactly similar to other types of spurious miracle stories, you would have some grounds for doubting it. But it is the uniqueness of this event and of this belief that sets it apart. If his understanding of the Gamesh miracles is as poor as his understanding of the road to Emmaus story in the Gospels, then I have no confidence in what we heard about those miracles tonight. Ehrman's position is not that the disciples met some stranger and this caused them to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The, the whole point of the Emmaus story is 
it's a, it's a backward-looking reflection upon the fact that the disciples did not believe when they found the tomb empty because there is no expectation in Judaism of a crucified Messiah, much less a rising one. So he, he completely misunderstands the story and misses the point. There is no reason to go on in Judaism. Messiahs were a dime a dozen in the century before and after Jesus. And the Romans dealt with them all in the same way. They crucified them. And if your favorite Messiah got himself crucified, you basically had two choices. Either you went home or you got yourself a new Messiah. But in no case, right across the first century before or after Christ, we find any Messianic group of Jews claiming that their crucified victim was the Messiah after all. Even if they had wanted to still believe in Jesus, at most they would have believed that he had gone to heaven uh, where the righteous dead go to await the resurrection at the end of the world. But why they would come up to believe, or come to believe what would have appeared to them as a, an un-Jewish fairy tale, namely that he was already risen from the dead, remains inexplicable on a naturalistic account. So I'm sorry, but I think we've got good grounds for thinking these facts are true. And I think that there is no better naturalistic explanation than the explanation the disciples gave and were willing to die for, namely that God had raised him from the dead. Finally, as to personal experience, again, I want to say that personal experience in the absence of some defeating reason is perfectly rational. And therefore, on the basis of the reality of God and his relationship to me, I'm perfectly rational to believe in God unless and until Dr. Pyle can give us some overriding arguments for atheism. Well, I'm afraid I must have missed something. The balance of the scientific evidence shows that the physical universe, or rather the multiverse even, must be finite in time. I didn't spot any arguments for that. Dr. Craig has given us some arguments for the nature of the cause, as well as merely an argument for there being a cause. He's provided some arguments for the cause, the cause being timeless and spaceless and all the other stuff. I didn't spot any arguments, I just spotted assertions. I didn't spot the glimmering of an argument for the claim that the cause of the physical universe, what brings about the Big Bang, must be timeless and spaceless and so on and so forth. Far less a personal being and a transcendent being. What about personal explanations? I think this actually works against Professor Craig. I don't know much about persons, but the persons I know all act and operate in time. If you read Locke's definition of a person in chapter 27 of book two of the essay concerning human understanding, probably the most famous definition of a person, a person is a thinking reflective substance that can consider itself the same at different times and in different places. Persons exist in times. I'm not really sure that I even understand what it would be to be a timeless person. Sounds a bit like a round square to me. So the idea that the acts of a timeless person are going to be the causes that bring about the physical universe existing in time, well, I just find that unintelligible. We get a misrepresentation of the Quentin Smith position. Quentin Smith doesn't say that the singularity might be the cause. 
doesn't even talk much about the singularity. He just says, I can present a model of the Big Bang in which every event is explained in terms of a prior event within the order of nature, i.e. an account of the Big Bang which does not require any sort of transcendent agent. Anything else to say? Um, I think Professor Craig rather undersells what I said, said about naturalism. I think I would want to defend something like the real Hume in the argument against miracles. Not the travesty offered by John Ehrman. I had hoped we might get onto that in the course of this debate, but it seems that we're not going to. I think I want to defend something like the real Hume's views. Now, the real Hume doesn't say that you should give a probability of zero to any account of a miracle, and he certainly doesn't say that your subjective probability for the occurrence of a miracle shouldn't go up when you hear witnesses. What he says is your subjective probability shouldn't go up very much. Why not? Well, there are lots and lots and lots of false positives out there. Just think of the people who go to Lourdes every year. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, devout believers, go to Lourdes hoping for cures. Some of them are going to get better. Some diseases spontaneously go into remission. Doctors make mistakes, misdiagnoses. And of course, there's a well-known bunch of psychosomatic effects. So there are going to be lots and lots and lots of false positives on any account. I think it's that sort of argument that gives me good grounds for thinking that there probably aren't miracles going on at Lourdes and for thinking that we're going to be able to tidy up the remaining anomalies of the ghost world. I think this is ultimately an empirical argument, not an a priori one. It's ultimately a track record argument. We end up explaining what's going on in the world solely in terms of natural causes. Is this a proof that there isn't a God? Well, of course it's not. Is this a proof that no miracles occur? Well, of course it's not. How could you provide such a proof? The argument is of the form, no reasonable person would believe that on the available evidence. As for personal experience, we've been offered not even a glimmering of a criterion for when people get it right. Professor Craig just says, oh, well, if they get it right, they get it right, and it's the real thing. But of course, anyone can say that. No doubt the Aztec high priests demanding further human sacrifices said that. So I hope none of you are going to think that personal experience gives good grounds for believing in the God, Christian God or any other God. You'd better find better grounds than that. Well, that was quite a series of high-octane engagements, uh, at times approaching tremendous sophistication, but never quite leaving behind some of the very basic questions and intuitions that I'm sure some of you have got uh, to reflect on and bring to the floor here and now. So we're going to enter into uh, a question and answer session. Thanks very much for kicking this off. Please. Uh, who are you and what's your question? Uh, I'm Daniil. 
Bassini. I study philosophy here. Um, I just had a question. Um, in your first argument, when you talked about the uh, infinity uh, as a manifestation in existence being self-contradictory, um, I was just wondering if that could be applied to God. Uh, is it therefore self-contradictory to have an infinitely powerful, infinitely loving uh, God? Yes, good. Uh, this is a good question um, that students often will ask. And I, I would say that no, it doesn't apply because the type of infinite that I'm speaking of here is a quantitative infinite of a collection of definite and discrete parts that are collected into a whole. Whereas when one speaks of the infinity of God, this is not a quantitative concept. Uh, it is, as it were, a qualitative infinity, not a quantitative or mathematical infinity. Basically, it means that God has attributes like uh, being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, eternal, necessary, self-existent. And these are all sort of captured by the umbrella term, the infinity of God. But there really isn't a separate attribute of God called infinity. It's a sort of umbrella term for all of these other superlative attributes, which are not mathematical or quantitative in nature. And so this wouldn't impinge upon the theological concept of God's infinity. Just ask another question. Um, no. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> That was a perfectly good question. Yes. And one's enough. Um, wrong side. A question for Andrew Pyle. Hi, uh, Dr. Pyle. Can I just say thank you both? Um, sorry, my name's Edward. Uh, I'm a scientist, so I don't have any kind of uh, grounding in, in philosophy. I, I do apologize if I have a uh, slightly simplistic question. But can I just first say thank you to both of you for a really uh, engaging debate? Um, basically, my question is, uh, your issue with uh, the argument a priori of God being a creator um, you were worried that that didn't have any testable quantities. I wondered, perhaps, um, if we know from empirical evidence that animals, uh, creatures, arise through a process of evolution, uh, that's a fact about the universe, um, then we look to loop quantum mechanics and we see that perhaps universes arise with the, um, the status of being able to support life through maybe a process of a sort of Darwinian evolution, and I wondered if that in itself does not provide some kind of underlying testable evidence for an existence of God. I don't think it provides any evidence of the existence of God at all. One of the beauties of the, the loop quantum theory, if it works, and this is all terribly speculative stuff, is that it will provide an account of the fine-tuning that doesn't require a God. It will provide a quasi-Darwinian account of fine-tuning. According to this theory, Universes are, well, they reproduce through black holes. So we can expect our universe to be well adapted for producing black holes because that's how universes reproduce. The production of black holes is like the sort of analog in cosmology of Darwinian fitness. And then if it turns out that universes well adapted to produce black holes are also well adapted to produce life and mind, then universes are going to be well adapted to produce life and mind, and we're going to be a sort of spin-off. What these reproducing universes are really trying to do is to produce as many black holes as possible, and we're just a side effect, and we mistakenly think that we're the purpose of the whole thing. 
Now, this is terribly, terribly speculative stuff. I haven't the foggiest notion if this theory is true. But if you look at the, the Smolin stuff, he insists again and again and again that his theory is leading to predictions. You can test it, and some of the tests come out right. Now, as I said to Professor Craig, in the past, natural theologians were quite prepared to, to make empirical claims about the universe. And currently, they seem to be running away from doing that. I think not, because otherwise people are going to have to be excluded from their right to ask questions. Um, my name's Joel. I'm a single honours philosopher. Uh, Dr. Craig, um, you said in your moral argument that um, if we didn't have a god, uh, we wouldn't be moral agents, and you proceeded to throw a lot of emotive terms around, I don't know, maybe to break the audience's glass jaw by using rape and other such words. Um, I'm just a bit curious. I saw an anthropological video today in Anthropology of Religion. There's an Amazonian tribe whose punishment for the women going into the man's hut is to rape her. Now, I felt a bit shocked by that, but I don't think they're not human. Are you positing that this Amazonian tribe don't fall into the category of humanity because they don't agree with your morality? No, on, on the contrary, what I'm arguing is that given atheism, there is no absolute standard of right and wrong by which you could uh, judge their actions to be immoral or wrong. And neither could you judge uh, National Socialist Germany or uh, apartheid in Afrikaans or South Africa or some homophobic society to be doing something morally wrong because in the absence of God to set an absolute standard for moral right and wrong, we are lost in a kind of socio-cultural relativism which your example illustrates for us. Thank you. Good evening, my name is Edmund Sutton and I'm reading Physics. Dr. Pyle, why would the disciples of Jesus have been prepared to be imprisoned, tortured, and killed very often in most unpleasant ways if they were not absolutely convinced that Jesus was actually alive again? What made them believe this so strongly? made them believe this so strongly? Well, people believe all sorts of things for all sorts of reasons. I don't think I'm obliged to say, to give some sort of account or explanation. If you look around the world, are there not many, many, many people who are going to die for something you regard as purely mythical? Am I expected to reply? <laughs> well, it, it's a rhetorical question, but I, I, don't, I don't think that... <laughs> I don't think we necessarily regard the willingness to die for a cause as A, any evidence of anything more than their belief, and I don't think we, we can regard their belief as any evidence of probable truth. People are prepared to die for all manner of silly causes. Next question, please. Uh, Tim Akerell, uh, I am retired. <laughs> Sir but not yet reborn. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, um, you refer to the death of Jesus. The Nicene Creed uses the phrase that Jesus being of one substance with the Father. Could you comment on the idea of Jesus dying but being of one substance with the Father? Well, the classical Christian understanding of the death of Christ is that he died in his human nature, that Christ is one person having two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and he obviously cannot die insofar as he is God. He dies in his human nature, and a human being dies when the soul is separated from the body. So in the case of Jesus, uh, his soul was separated from his 
human body which was then laid in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. And so that would be the understanding of how uh, Jesus died. Hello, I'm Swithin Dobson. I study economics in Cardiff, so I was interested in philosophy. But hey, here's a question. Dr. Pyle, um, what is your position on a, a priori arguments in general? Since you seem to be reject a priori arguments, especially in regards to cosmology and the origin of the universe, but you seem to do that a priori and thus an act of performative contradiction. No, 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 no. This, this is a track record argument. The record of doing physics a priori is lousy. Just go back through the history of science and try to look at the number of people who've tried to make substantive, informative claims about the physical universe on the basis of a priori methods, and they've got it wrong again and again and again and again and again. This is an empirical argument. It's a track record argument. Classic example is the, the wonderful joke about Hegel that he managed to come up with a wonderful a priori proof that the number of planets could only be seven just before somebody discovered the eighth. But there's oodles of examples. This is not an a priori argument against doing physics a priori. This is an empirical argument against doing physics a priori. Just look at the track record and you'll see that the a priorists get it wrong endlessly. Hi, I'm Bryony, I study philosophy. Um, Dr. Craig, you seem to be trying to prove that the Christian God exists by reference to religious experience. Um, and you also seem to be saying that all non-Christian religious experiences are kind of counterfeit and therefore can't undermine the truth of the vertical claims of Christian ones. Um, isn't that just begging the question um, in favor of Christianity? Mm -hmm. Let me correct that impression if that's what I gave. Um, my point was that uh, the existence of counterfeit experiences does nothing logically to undermine the veridicality of a genuine experience. But that's not to say that there aren't uh, veridical religious experiences in other religions. I think in other religions uh, their experiences are very different from Christian experiences. For example, uh, uh, an experience of transcendence, for example. I have no reason to think that in other religions one doesn't experience, uh, have an experience of transcendence or an experience of uh, some greater uh, whole, greater than all of us and uh, as finite parts and things of that sort. So I, I don't deny that there can be religious experiences that are veridical in other religions. But it's not question-begging in any case, uh, because if I have an experience of God as a personal Savior and, and Lord who forgives my sins and brings me into relationship with himself, and I have no good reason to think that that experience is delusory, I'm perfectly within my rational rights to believe that I am so related to him. And uh, so what one would need would be some kind of a defeater of that that belief. And I would say that's true for religious experience in general, that in the absence of some sort of a defeater, that, and by a defeater I mean an overriding objection, you're perfectly rational to go with what your experience tells you. Uh, Herman Corders, citizen. Uh, I fear I'm on the wrong side here actually, but may I just put this question? I believe uh, Professor Craig mentioned that Christianity is compatible with agnosticism. Could you uh, explain that more? I think that's probably true. 
Certainly there are versions of agnosticism in the 19th century which come very, very close to religious belief. If you look at 19th century agnosticism, you've got a very negative tradition running through T.H. Huxley, which comes out of Hume and says, you know, maybe the world of phenomena is all there is, maybe there's nothing behind the scenes, and that's very close to atheism. But you've also got a strand of agnosticism coming out of Kant. And Kant believes that behind the phenomenal world of appearances, there's a noumenal world of things in themselves, and we can know that it's there, but we can't know anything about it. And that strand of agnosticism runs through people like Herbert Spencer. And he talks about the unknowable with a big U. Now, you might think that's a pretty watered-down version of religion to say, well, there's this unknowable thing that sort of lurks behind the scenes, and maybe it's God, but we don't know that. But there certainly are, you know, strands of meaning, nuances of meaning within agnosticism, and some of them come fairly close to, you know, being positive about religion. Not about any particular religion, because, of course, this is the unknowable. So you'd lose a lot of, you know, particular creeds. But, of course, it could be perfectly true that... Well, what, what could be perfectly true? It could be perfectly true that... There is the God of Christ, of the Christianity. You could be a theist. Indeed. Indeed. And every, everything I said today is perfectly consistent with fideism. You know, the fideists believe that, you know, God exists or even the God of a particular tradition exists, but we just don't have any good arguments. A quick word from William. May because, I ask? Uh, no, no. A quick what, word from William because you what were... What really I meant was that many Christian theologians believe in the full Christian gospel and truth, but they don't do so on the basis of argument and evidence. And so it's in that rational sense. They're, they're agnostic about the value of arguments and evidence for Christian faith. But, but they're still Christian. They, they believe it on faith or on the basis of religious experience, not on the basis of rational argument and evidence. That's what I meant. Yes, in that sense. Christianity and agnosticism are compatible. That's right. Okay, next question. Um, I'm Laura. I'm a philosophy student. And you said in your um, moral argument that God must exist on the basis that he's the only possible source of objective morality and that um, in society people would not like to admit that murder and rape are wrong purely on the basis that um, society has made it this way. Um, what I would like to ask is, of course, it's comforting and it's all well and good to say that, oh, yes, there must be an objective moral law, murder and rape are always wrong. But where, as a philosophy student, I've learned that logic is incredibly important. But where is the logic in moving from the fact that society has um, dictated, so to speak, mm -hmm. that murder and rape are wrong? Where is the logical movement from that to the fact that there must be objective moral laws and that there must be a God? It would be on the basis of our moral experience. In the same way that we trust our sense experience that there is a world of external objects out there and that you're not, say, a body lying in the matrix being stimulated to believe that there is a reality out there when it's really all virtual. Um, in the same way, we perceive a realm of ob objectively existing moral values and duties. And in the absence of some reason to think that this moral experience is delusory, uh, we're perfectly justified in believing that our, our apprehensions of the moral realm are veridical. It's, it's on a par with our sensory perception of the external world. And, and let me just ask you, I mean, you said you're a philosophy student. As you reflect upon moral experience and moral values, don't you think that if you were to walk out of this room this evening and somebody assaulted you and raped you, that that person has done something wrong 
that that's not morally indifferent what he did? Is that a rhetorical question? No, that's asking? a serious question. Okay, <laughs> got to check. Don't, don't you think that that person has not done something that's morally indifferent, that that person would have done something wrong well, to course, you? Of course I would think that, but there's no reason for me then to conclude logically that that must always be wrong. That's just what society has wrong. taught me. There's no reason to jump from the fact that society has taught me that, mo that being attacked in the street is wrong to that there must be a moral realm of, of truths that are objective. There's yes, no connection. Uh, well, I want to know, though, uh, as, as, a, as a philosopher, as you think about this, is that what you think? Do you think, in fact, he, he hasn't done anything wrong? This is just societal conventions? Or do you think that he really would do something wrong to you? And I'm not talking about always wrong. I'm talking about is it ever wrong? Do you think that there are objective moral values and duties? As a philosopher, I've probably not studied enough to come to a, a valid conclusion right. towards that. As a, pers as a person, um, I would believe that that was wrong. But in, in philosophical terms, there's, there's nothing that would say to me that there is a logical connection there. Thanks for that robust exchange, uh, Laura. Hello, I'm Rob, I'm an engineer. Um, what I'd like to ask you, uh, Andy Pyle, is uh, you ended like, your talk asking the question, well, making the statement, you better have better evidence than uh, William Lane Craig has presented. Um, can I ask you what evidence would be acceptable for Evidence the... for a miracle. Is that what you're asking? Well, yeah, well, how would you, what criteria? Oh, ev evidence for a miracle is easy. I mean, I talked about the people going to Lourdes, and many of them get better, and many of them report miracles, but they tend to be sort of marginal cases, you know, cancer's going into remission, whatever, which happens anyway in the course of nature. So it would be very hard to discern in any one case whether it was a genuine bona fide miracle. How about setting up the, 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 the scene this way? Um, suppose I say what I want is the following case. A man who's just lost both his legs in a car crash cut off above the knee. So he's just had both his legs amputated. And he's wheeled into some room in Lourdes and there's a jury of appointed observers including Richard Dawkins, my good friend Anthony Grayling, the great Randy, you know, the American magician who goes around exposing fraudulent mediums and so on. So we'll appoint a team of real hardline skeptics and unbelievers, and they can have, you know, all the resources that are available to count for fraud. And then, within a minute, this man's legs grow back, to their original size and shape and muscularity, or perhaps something better. Let's make it something better. Let's make it a vast improvement on his earlier state. And he goes out from the hospital, and he runs the 100 meters in 9.5 seconds. World record time. Now, you think you're going to say, you're asking a lot, aren't you? But I don't think I am. After all, Professor Craig and many, many of you here believe in an omnipotent God. Now, if a god can create the universe out of nothing, surely what I've just asked is pretty easy. Child's play from an omnipotent god. Now, if something like that were to happen at Lord's, I'd be convinced. <laughs> we're getting close to time. Um, I think we'll take um, one more on each side. What time do we have to finish, Julian? Go, can we run another five minutes?
We'll run another five minutes, so let's keep questions and answers short. I don't like to disappoint people at the end of the queue here. Hmm. Go. Um, I'm Sam Collins, another philosophy student. Um, Professor Craig, how do you account for the people who never had the benefit of hearing Jesus Christ's teachings? Uh, Isn't there a great again, inequality I'm not, I'm not, there? How do you account for the people who never had the benefit of hearing Jesus Christ's teachings? Isn't there a big inequality between the people who had the chance to hear him yes. and people who don't? Yeah. Isn't that a very unfair statement? Well, it, I, I've written on this, uh, and you can find articles on this on my website uh, at williamlanecraig.com. Um, <laughs> they're, they're free. You know, they're there to download. Uh, um, and I, I think what we can say is that God judges people on the basis of the response to the information that they have. Uh, so that those who have never heard of Christ will not be judged on the basis of how they respond to Christ. That would be manifestly unfair, but they'll be judged on the basis of how they respond to their information, the information that they do have. And that, doesn't that render Jesus um, um, unimportant and pointless? Couldn't you just have no Jesus and just have everyone responding no, to no, the No, no, it wouldn't at all, they because they would still only be saved through the atoning death of Christ. But if they respond to the information that God has revealed to them, the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death can be applied to them without a conscious knowledge of Christ. This is the way people in the Old Testament were saved and their sins were forgiven. They had never heard of Christ. Many of them had never even heard of the idea of a Messiah. Uh, and yet uh, they responded to the revelation that God had given to them and therefore it was reckoned to them as righteousness and, and until Christ should come. Uh, take it or leave it. Next question. Um, my name's Tim, I'm a student. Um, hi Andrew, I was just wondering about your point about supernatural or miracles as an evidence for that. You brought up Ganesh mm -hmm. as an example, as a sort of comparative example to the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, you gave us reasons as to why there's more evidence for that compared to uh, the resurrection. But as an aside, um, William then said, well that's too expected um, from this religion to expect this sort of miracle to occur. And then you said, well, that's the same for the res resurrection, um, sort of talking about this mysterious stranger on the Emmaus Road um, and how that was a way of going on or whatever. Um, Andrew then, sorry, William then went on to say that um, actually that was totally unexpected for um, messianic groups to continue so, to resurrect their Messiah or whatever. How would you respond to that? Well, I know far, far less about this than Professor Craig. I was relying on not this one, but the other website debate with Professor Ehrman. And Professor Ehrman says, it's actually not 100% true that this was completely unexpected. He gives an account in which it makes good sense to say the mysterious stranger explains the meaning of the, the scriptures. And in the light of that explanation of the meaning of the scriptures, the disciples come to get some sort of sense of the significance of what's just happened and start to develop what I think is the myth. Now, Professor Craig obviously thinks this is historically real. But I think all I wanted to say there is it's not wholly unexpected. It's not wholly alien. There's an account here that refers back to existing Jewish tradition and Jewish practice. And that's not coming from me. That's coming from a man who studied the stuff. Please. Hi there, I'm Chris and I'm also an engineer. Uh, Dr. Craig, uh, a lot of the arguments you gave, um, it seemed to me were applicable to all different types of religion, 
not yeah. just Christianity. And of course, the argument tonight is, does a Christian God exist? Do you think that if you had been brought up in a different part of the world, that you would be a Christian? I, I don't have any idea. It depends on what part of the world I would be brought up in. But you're quite right that the first three arguments are basically arguing for monotheism, which would be consistent with Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. It's not until you get to the resurrection of Jesus that the field narrows down among those monotheisms to Christian monotheism. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.